always approaching what we think is the Lord's will through a paradigm. We never read Scripture. We read our reading of Scripture. Scripture is not speaking on its own terms. It's speaking in terms I can hear. It's my Bible, how I'm hearing it. The sermon that's being given today, I'm not going to give one sermon. I'm going to give 300 sermons. Because every one of you is going to hear something different in what I'm saying. I can't tell you how many times I finished a sermon and someone came up, comes up to me to say, well, I really didn't like this part. You didn't, I didn't say that. Good for you. And not quite as often, but pretty often, people say, I loved when you said this. Thank you, but I didn't say that, right? That's, that's your sermon, not mine, right? Why, and why moments like this are as much about the hearing as they are the speaking. That everything you're, you're hearing is filtered to you through your way of seeing the world, through your conscience and your common sense. And everything I'm speaking is coming through my conscience and my common sense. But the work of the Holy Spirit is to free us from that so that we are not conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind. So what Paul is after in, in this letter is to find a way to unify a church that is splintering apart because they're holding to their conscience and their common sense. Now, in, in the case of this letter, it's breaking along Jew-Gentile lines, almost perfectly, so that Jews are aligning themselves with one way of life within the church, and Gentiles are aligning themselves with another way of life. The Jew-Gentile split is not likely to affect us, but you can make all kinds of connections, racial differences, political differences, ethnic differences, where we start to align with those who are most like us and think in the ways we've been taught to think and find wrong where we find wrong and find right where we find right and find good where we find good and bad where we find bad. They vote like we vote. They sing the songs we sing. They read the same translation of the Bible we read. They watch the same news channel. They like the same movies, and we align ourselves like aligning itself with like. And then fearing and hating those who are calibrated differently, those who orient their lives in different ways. But to be the church is to be a people who refuse to align along those lines. We are not a people who are joined by our conscience and our common sense. We're joined by our allegiance to Jesus who is Lord over our conscience and our common sense. And so Paul is trying to unify this church by subverting their trust in themselves. A.W. Tozer says, there is no transformation in the Christian life unless it comes by humble self-distrust. So I want, I want to do this as cheerfully and as modestly as I can, but what I want to happen today is when you leave here, I want you to be suspicious of your own judgment. I want you to leave here thinking, I really shouldn't trust myself so much, especially about the things that matter most. The more important it is, the less trustworthy you are. The more important it is, the less trustworthy you are. And if we can live that way with one another, open to the transformation of the Spirit, then what we'll find is that we're joined together precisely by our incapacity to orient our own lives faithfully. The reason I need you is that I don't know what I'm doing. I don't join you because you provide some small benefit to me or not. I'm dependent upon you. As Paul says in this passage, we are members of one another. Our lives depend 
upon our willingness and readiness to depend upon one another. That what we need is not independence, but deep, deep interdependence. Where the gifts God has given you are for me, and the gifts that God has given me are for you, and we cannot live without one another. That's what we're called to. And then to become a model to our culture at large, that this is how you live together. This is the way in which God knits us into a body. Now, we don't have time to go through the entire book of Romans today, but we can do most of it. So let's, let's start in chapter 1. And I, I just want to show you how Paul subverts their judgment again and again. So he begins in a famous or infamous passage, depending on who you are and how you're reading, how your conscience and common sense are formed, with this list of wickednesses. It begins in verse 18 of chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now some of us, depending on our conscience and our common sense, when we see passages about the wrath of God, it turns something in our stomach. We don't want to think about or talk about the wrath of God. And other people, they only live for these verses in the Bible. Like something, you talk about the wrath of God and everything in them lights up. That's why they love Jesus, apparently. But that's conscience and common sense. And Paul is masterfully setting up, or let's use a metaphor from the culture of the time, he's about to counterpunch them in a way they cannot possibly be ready for or to defend. So he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Now, rhetorically, what happens when he says all of this wickedness is about them? What do you hear? He's not talking about you. You belong in the group with Paul, judging those who are wicked, unlike Paul and you. That's how we read, and Paul knows that's how they read. And so he begins to move through all of these different sins, all of these different egregious offenses against God's law and God's character. And then... Picking up in verse 28, he says, Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. Remember that phrasing. God gave them up to a debased mind and to things that should not be done. They were filled with every kind of wickedness. Notice he's still using that pronoun. They are are filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness. They are gossips. Let's just rush past that. Slanderers. God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious toward parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And at this point, one group within the church is just foaming at the mouth. Because finally, somebody's standing up and saying the truth to these people who need to hear it. Finally, somebody is calling sin, sin, and drawing the line where the line needs to be drawn and drawing it dark and thick so everyone knows God will not stand for this. And then comes the counterpunch. Therefore, you have no excuse, you who judge others. Did you you feel the punch? He's just listed all of this wickedness that they are committing. And the punch is, and you are the ones who are sinning. All of you who were excited by that list of sins because it's naming your enemies, you are the one who's wrong. 
you thought that Paul was singling out all of those who are committing sin and need to be judged, but actually he was singling out all of you who are judging the sinners. Maybe I need to stop here. Right? You're, you're set up to think he is offended by those who are offending God's law when what he is in fact doing is setting you up to see whether or not you align with them. There's a great play it, 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 a French playwright did about 50, 60 years ago about the judgment of God. And the judgment of God in his account goes like this. You are kept in a kind of antechamber, a, a room hidden to the side, and you watch all the people you have known in your life be judged by God. And what you find out at the end of that episode is that you were actually the one being judged through the entire episode. Because what's being judged is how you respond to the judgment of God on others. When you see God being merciful to someone you don't want to receive mercy, that's being judged in you. What's going to happen when you see God forgive someone you won't forgive? Do you think, God, how dare you? Or do you think, God, give that forgiveness to me too? That's what Paul is doing here. You think he's judging this group of people, when in fact he's judging you, judging them. In this passage, we're going to be okay. We're going to make it through. We really are. But it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. I told you, I want to send you home deeply suspicious. Not of me, (laughs) but of yourself. So there are two phrases that Paul uses in this passage that any of us who study scripture are familiar with. One is, the, they do what is against nature. He's seen, he talks about women and men who turn from the natural to the unnatural. They do what is against nature. And then because of that, three different times in this passage, Paul says God gave them over. God gave them over. And you can see in that church as well as in our day, there are people that they hear those lines against nature, God gave them over, and they hear the judgment of God. And they assume that they are aligned on the right side of that judgment. But in this letter, and we won't take time this morning to read it because I have to get, get through my introduction to the point I really want to make. <laughs> That's a joke. But to subvert that, Paul comes back in Romans 11 and says, God does what's against nature. He grafts in these broken off branches into the olive tree. He grafts Gentiles into the Jewish tree. Now imagine you're the hearer of the first hearer of this letter, and you hear Paul say, they do what's against nature. And you think, yes, that's right. And then Paul says, oh, and by the way, God does what's against nature too. Now what are you going to do? Now you're, you're, you're wobbling. Right? You're knocked off balance. You're up in the air. And he says three times in this passage, God gave them over. Because of all of this wickedness, God gave them over. But in chapter 8, he says, God gave over his son for us. So that what Paul seems to want to do is to say, if you think what they're doing against nature is the problem, you don't understand the way the gospel works. And if you think that God giving sinners over is his last word, you don't understand how the gospel works. Because deeper than his giving over of the sinner is his giving over of the son. This is penultimate. This is ultimate. The giving over of the sinner 
The giving over of the sinner to their sin for its own destruction is not the last word God speaks. It's the next to the last word. And the last word God speaks is, I don't count it against you. Go and sin no more. That's gospel. And what we do for or against nature, for or against the way of things, for or against conscience and common sense is never the last word because God is not interested in preserving our worlds. He's going to turn our worlds upside down and establish his kingdom. We don't pray every Sunday, Lord, let my world come and my will be done. Let my conscience be affirmed. Let my common sense be proven right and vindicated. What we pray is let your kingdom come. Undo everything that I have thought, if that's necessary, for me to see what's true. That's at the heart of our faith. Then, chapter 10. Verse 17. Now, I I hate and don't really hate what I'm about to do here. There's a little bit of mischievousness in me that that I'm excited about what's about to happen here. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the word of Christ. Now, all of us have heard this passage because this is connected to soul winning and evangelism and the proclamation of the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the word of God or the word of Christ. And we've heard this used as a kind of technique that if if we want people to believe, we proclaim the gospel, and the gospel ignites that faith, that faith turns them to Christ, and that brings about their salvation, almost as as a kind of technique. But notice, Paul only brings this up to say, it doesn't work that way. Sorry, Billy Graham, it doesn't work that way. Notice what he says. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing comes from the word of Christ or the word of God. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Again, I ask, did Israel not understand? Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. Do you hear the paradox? I have been found by those who did not seek me. Again. Who finds God? Not those who are looking for him. Because those who are looking for him are almost always certainly looking for affirmation of their own view of the world. You remember what happens with the rich young ruler? He seeks Jesus out. Not because he wants to follow Jesus, but because he's looking for affirmation that what he has already done is right. And I want to say this modestly. But most of us, most of the time, turn to scripture and prayer and worship, not because we want the truth, but because we want what we know to be true to be affirmed as true. We don't want to be righteous, we want to be right. We don't want to be saved, we want to be vindicated. We don't want to be transformed. We want it to be clear that we have been transformed. But God's not interested in affirming my conscience or my common sense. He's interested in saving me, in transforming me, in conforming me not to this world, but to his son. I'm preaching better than you're shouting, as they say. (laughs) I have been found by those who do not seek me. And then this comes right in the midst of Paul's 
grand treatment of what's happening with Jew and Gentile. In which he says, my heart is broken. I, I would count myself accursed if there was any way in which I could exchange my life for the life of my people. I would do it in a heartbeat if I knew my damnation could mean their salvation. And he says, but for whatever reason, Israel, the people God has called out as his own, the people who seek God, they haven't found him. And these Gentiles who are stumbling around in the dark, not seeking the true God at all, they found him. And so Paul has, has kind of worked his way up and out of this particular conflict in the Roman church to talk about the scope of God's work in history. And in chapter 11, he brings all of this to a head, 11.25. So that you may not claim to be wiser than you are. This is his, this is his central concern. So that you will not claim to be wiser than you are, brothers and sisters, I want you to understand this mystery. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all of Israel will be saved. As it is written, out of Zion will come the deliverer. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. They are enemies of God for your sake. Now, I want to say something. Prepare yourself. There are people who are against God because God is providentially ordering their unfaithfulness for your sake. And you and your belief are indebted to them and their unbelief. You are only a believer because of ways in which God is using other people's unbelief for your good. How dare you boast in believing? How dare you triumph over others and judge them in their sins? Their sins, God is using to bring about your transformation. If that doesn't humble you, nothing will humble you. If that doesn't make you check your self-righteousness at the door, nothing will make you check your self-righteousness at the door. Because everything you're doing right is something the grace of God has worked in you using what others have done wrong for your good. You remember when Moses loses his temper with Israel and he strikes the rock even though God said to speak to it? God still made water come out. So hear me, let me say this as directly and bluntly as I can. Most of the grace that has come in your life has come through people who have wronged you. That God has turned for your good. If Pharaoh's heart's not hardened, there is no exodus. And there's no exodus in your life if there's not a Pharaoh in your life. And what you and I have to come to see is that we need Pharaoh as much as we need Moses. We need the Moses who strikes the rock in anger as much as we need the Moses who speaks to the rock. And the truth of the matter is, most of the time, we are Pharaoh to other people's Israel. Most of the time, God is using your rebellion for someone else's good. He's using your unfaithfulness for somebody else's faithfulness. So don't be proud. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. This is about the mystery of God's working, and so Paul pushes on. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their ancestors. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were once disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience. 
So they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they too may now receive mercy. The elect are elect for the sake of the non-elect. Pharaoh is there so God can deliver Israel. And Israel is there so God can break the heart of Pharaoh in their deliverance and save them. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. I hate Esau so I can show Jacob my love. I love Jacob so I can show Esau my love. Everything God is doing is the best possible work for everyone involved. Whatever is happening in your life right now, God is setting you up for transformation. And if you are running headlong into rebellion and sin, God is using your disobedience for someone else's good. And there is nothing you can do about it. And if you are running headlong into the embrace of God, if you are overflowing with praise and you're being transformed, God is using the mercy he's giving to you to transform you for the sake of those who are running away from him. Everything God is doing in you is for somebody else's sake. And there is nothing we can do about it. And so Paul says, for God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. How dare you trust your judgment? God's judgments can't be known. How dare I trust my assessment of myself or of you? God's judgments can't be known. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him to receive a gift in return? For from him and through him and to him are all things. And it's at this point that he says, so don't be conformed to the world. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think because you can't imagine what God is doing. What he is up to is infinitely beyond all you could ask or think. Whatever you're praying for, God is doing better than that. And if you are in self-righteousness praying judgment on other people, God's going to be merciful to them in a way you can't imagine. And if you are in the character of Christ praying for other people to be forgiven, God is going to be merciful to them in a way you can't imagine. So whatever you do, God will work it out for the good of all. And that's why at the end of the letter, Romans 14, I really am almost done. Paul brings the point home blatantly. And like a lot of preachers, Paul takes a long time to say it plainly. And he's worked through this entire letter, punching and counterpunching, pulling the carpet out from under them over and over and over again. Just when they think they know what he's saying, he says the exact opposite. And then he culminates in this, Romans 14, 1. Welcome those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. Listen, so much of our energy is spent quarreling over things that are nothing more than opinion. And God doesn't care about our opinions. And neither should we. I won't say this to you, but I'll tell you what I say to my students. (laughs) Opinions are absolutely meaningless. They're as meaningless as physiological reactions. If I hit you below your knee and your leg snaps out, it's meaningless. I'm just stimulating you, forcing your body to act unconsciously. And that's what opinions are. 
Opinions are there not because you've been transformed into the mind of Christ, but because you were formed and shaped in a common sense world. Your opinions are about other people's thinking. The opinions you hold, whether we're talking about money or politics or sexuality or scripture or worship, the opinions you and I have are not about us and the transformation God is working in us. It's about the world we were raised in. And opinions don't, we have them. They're there. We shouldn't be ashamed of them. We can share them, but we should share them this way. Well, I think this, but of course that doesn't mean anything. (laughs) I think this, right? Now imagine what would happen if every Facebook status was that. This is what I think. But that doesn't mean anything. Because it doesn't. Because every one of our opinions is two weeks from the kingdom of God. Because even the things I'm right about, I'm holding them in ways that aren't true. And even the things I'm wrong about, I'm wrong about them coming from a place of right motive. And I, no one can track that but God. Only God can use my, someone's untruth for my truth. Or my truth for someone else's untruth. Only God can do this. I can't search out his ways. And so I have to humble myself and realize I have opinions, but that's the beginning of the transformation that's going to come. Opinions are Egypt, and you've got to go through the wilderness where you are stripped of all of that before you get to the promised land of the mind of Christ. And the problem, a lot of us, is we're living in Egypt and calling it the promised land. We're holding to opinions and calling it the word of God. We're leaning on our own understanding and calling it trusting in God. So here's what you have to do. Stop trusting yourself, especially about the things you're most convicted about. Because that conviction, the ferocity of that conviction comes from your conscience, not from the Holy Spirit. You know it's the Holy Spirit working when you're being convicted of something your conscience doesn't sense. I remember once, and I really am almost done, I was going forward to pray, and there had been a revival service at our Bible college, and it was probably some message about either sexual immorality or about witnessing to people, because those are the only things that get talked about in Bible college. (laughs) And so I'm going forward, either to repent of some sin in my life, or to pray that God would help me to witness better. And, and I don't remember which of the two it was, but it had to be one of those two. And suddenly I heard God say this, I can do nothing in your life until you respect women. That wasn't my conscience speaking. Because I had no idea I didn't respect women. I didn't feel any guilt about it. I hadn't had any kind of struggle over time with why can't I respect, I, I, you, you would have asked me, I would have said, listen, I'm the closest person in my life is my grandmother. My mentor is a female faculty member. I, I listen to women. But the Holy Spirit said, no, 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 you don't. But I can't tell you how many times I've been outraged. But outrage doesn't come from God. Outrage comes from conscience. Outrage comes from common sense. Why can't they see it? It's obvious. And when we do that, Paul says, you're judging. You're quarreling about opinions. You're trusting your own judgment rather than the judgment of God. So he says in verse 13, 
Let us therefore no longer pass judgment on one another. I love how direct he is, how honest he is, because he realizes when people live together, they spend all their time judging one another. That's what we do. Passively or aggressively, or passive and aggressively, that's what we do. And Paul says, stop. Do this instead. Resolve never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of another person. Don't engage other people in any way that can stop the work of grace in their life. This is what we're called to. This is the heart of the Christian life, to live with one another in such a way that we don't interrupt what God is doing in others. This is why we can't judge one another, because God is at work there. And if I push my judgment onto them, what if they start listening to my judgment instead of God's? What if they start listening to me instead of God? So I have to be, I have to do whatever is in my power to make sure I don't interrupt the work of God in your life. And so this, this is what I think this looks like. This looks like midwifery. One of the reasons I love, I love this metaphor is that midwives don't, they, they just show up after all the real action has taken place. Right? The, the midwife shows up, the pregnancy is already underway. And the body is ready to deliver this child. And the midwife's responsibility is to just make sure that what should happen does happen. This is what we serve in one another. We don't impregnate one another with the work of God. I don't bring the gospel to anyone. I just show up after the gospel has already been at work in their life. And try to make sure that I help them breathe. And push at the right time. And to stop cursing their husbands. I just, I just show up to say, it's going to be all right. It's going to take some time, but this is going to be birthed in you. And what I love, the, the Old Testament reading for the day, is the story of the midwives in Egypt. And it's one of my favorite passages in the entire Old Testament. There are two midwives named who are working for Pharaoh to deliver all of the children. I mean, these are some busy midwives. They're delivering all of the children that the Israelites are having. And Pharaoh calls these two employees in, these two midwives, two midwives. And he says, listen, when these Hebrew women are having their babies, if it's a male child, I want you to kill it. And if it's a female child, it can live. You know what they do? They disobey. Because the only way to live in line with the kingdom is to creatively disobey the world. Now, again, I know this is destabilizing some of you, but you've got to see there is no way to follow Jesus unless you're going to walk at an angle with every other Lord. It's Caesar or Jesus. It's Pharaoh or the work of God. And so they creatively disobey. And then Pharaoh calls them back in and says, hey, wait a minute, why aren't you killing these, these babies? I love that. Pharaoh's not the brightest bulb. And he says, wait, why, why aren't you killing them? And this is their response. Well, these Hebrew women, they're not like... Egyptian women. They, they have their babies so fast, we don't have time to abort them. And Pharaoh buys it. And we're supposed to laugh because here's the thing. Two little Hebrew midwives overturn Pharaoh and his entire kingdom. 
Now hear me. Most of you aren't going to hear anything I say, but two of you are going to hear me. And that's all that matters. Because if two of us, while we're working for Pharaoh, while we're living in this world, cannot be of it, and can creatively disobey common sense and conscience to be faithful to the gospel, then what's going to happen is we're going to set free everything that the world means to destroy. Everything the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy, we are subverting. And everywhere death is spoken, we speak life. And everywhere darkness comes, we bring light. And everywhere judgment comes, we bring forgiveness. And we just keep doing it modestly, hiddenly. Everybody thinks we're working for Pharaoh, but we're working for a different Lord. And then this is what the text in Exodus says. And because God saw their obedience, he favored them. And the midwives had their own families. Because if in this kingdom, if you just get busy working in other people's lives, what you find out is that's how your transformation comes. If you start delivering other people's babies, you'll have your own babies. If to be an American is to say, have your babies first. Get your house in order first. Get your relationship with God right first. Focus on what you need. And God says, no, 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 it's, it's the opposite. If you will just midwife all that I'm doing in the people around you, I'll give you your family too. So sanctuary, here's, here's the word. Stop judging one another. Stop obeying Pharaoh. And like those two little midwives, just subvert it all. And every time your instinct is to speak condemnation, speak grace. And the next time you're in a conversation where gossip and slander is taking place, don't withdraw. Creatively disobey the order of the world and speak life right into that situation. Especially if everything in you is screaming that you don't want to. Let me pray for you. God, help us to distrust ourselves by trusting you. Subvert our expectations so we can be opened up to everything you promise us. God, help us to imitate these two little midwives and to trust that if we will creatively disobey the order of the world, you will bring your kingdom. And you'll not only bring your kingdom in other people's lives, but the healing that we're looking for, the transformation that we're longing for, will take place in us as our attention is given entirely to our neighbor. God, help us to rejoice that your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. And help us to rest in knowing that no matter what we do, you are good and your mercy endures forever. Amen.